Good morning, my name is Patrick Manahan. I'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 to 17. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God's breath and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of God. Well, as we continue our series in 2 Timothy today, let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word given to us. We acknowledge that it uh, can not only make us wise for salvation, uh, but help us to grow in likeness to your Son, and we pray today that you'll help us to reflect on what Paul had to challenge Timothy with regard to uh, continuing in his role. We pray that you'd challenge us afresh too about the responsibility we have uh, to pass on the good news. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, our time, uh, Americans commemorated the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. And the image that is perhaps seared in our minds the most is that of the Twin Towers on fire. And although there were many stories of selfless courage on that day, perhaps the greatest embodiment of sacrificial actions were the passengers and crew on United Flight 93, which crashed in Somerset County in Pennsylvania. The story is one of 40 people brought together by circumstances, banding together in a time of crisis. The passengers ranged in age from 20 right up to 79. Among them was a wildlife biologist, a former bookkeeper, a toy company executive, an arborist, a retired bartender, attorneys, college students, a nurse, even an iron worker who had helped build the World Trade Center. 45 minutes into the flight at around 9.30 a.m., the flight was hijacked by four men. And one of the hijackers announced that there was a bomb on board. And using autopilot, they pointed the jetliner back towards Washington, D.C. The crew and passengers had been herded into the back of the plane. But using onboard phones in the plane and their own personal cell phones, they called people on the ground. They learnt that other hijackers had just flown planes into both towers of the World Trade Center. And so they held a vote. In an act that has become part of American folklore over the past 20 years, the passengers and the crew members chose 
to attack the knife-wielding hijackers and retake the plane, as they expressed it. One passenger's widow recalled that her husband had said by phone, we're waiting until we're over a rural area. They rushed the first-class cabin in the cockpit, carrying out what the 9-11 Commission's report called a sustained effort. One of the plane's data recorders captured loud thumps, crashes, shouts, breaking glasses and plates. The hijacker flying the plane in order to throw the assaulters off balance rocked the aircraft left and right, and eventually the hijacker piloting the plane asked, shall we put it down? The 9-11 Commission concluded that the hijackers judged that the passengers were only seconds from overcoming them. The report highlighted the passengers' selflessness. Their actions saved the lives of countless others and may have saved either Capitol Hill or the White House from destruction. Well, as we consider the last section of 2 Timothy chapter 3 today, uh, Paul describes how he embodies selfless perseverance in gospel ministry in the face of great difficulties. He has done so in order to encourage Timothy's perseverance so that many might be saved and equipped. And so the question that our passage poses today is why should Timothy continue to pass on the gospel? In the face of opposition and suffering, why should Timothy continue? Well, the first answer to that question is this, because he has the example of those who shared it with him. Because he has the example of those who shared it with him. So notice again what is stated in 2 Timothy 3 from verses 10 to 14. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from who you learned it. Well, here we have the clear example of the Apostle Paul, which should encourage Timothy to persevere. Paul lists nine things that Timothy has observed in his life and from which he has learned uh, these are events and attributes that Timothy knows well. He knows Paul's doctrine, his manner of life. And, and this is significant given that Paul is stressing that the truth of the message must be matched by the character of the messenger. Paul's example is in sharp contrast to the false teachers uh, mentioned in the earlier section of chapter 3, which we considered last week whose ungodly behaviour reflects their opposition to the truth. And these evildoers and impostors are mentioned again in verse 13, where they will continue their downward spiral of deceiving others while being deceived themselves. And Paul's example is the one to follow, despite the suffering and persecution that he had endured because this is what will happen to anyone who wants to live a godly life, he says 
in verse 12. And Paul had taught the truth in the context of a life conducted with purpose, trusting God, loving others with endurance, no matter what opposition came. And Timothy had seen this and he had seen the example of his mother and grandmother as well. No doubt there was suffering that came to his family as a result of their witness to Christ. And this was certainly the case for the Apostle Paul. And so Paul is seeking to encourage Timothy to consider his example and to be spurred on to keep going, whatever the cost. And of course, we can find such examples that inspire us today too. I continue to be spurred on by the example of James and Sheila Roy, who lead the house church of Bangladesh. I had the opportunity to observe their ministry firsthand in 2017 and to hear their commitment to keep sharing the gospel in spite of the opposition. I mean, James is a fearless evangelist and church planter. I mean, one day he was walking not far from his house a few years ago when he was approached by two men who told him that he needed to stop sharing about Jesus, that they knew who he was. They said they knew where he lived and worse still, they knew where his kids went to school. And so it would be in his interest to stop. Well, James seemed unperturbed by that, but I remember asking his wife, Sheila, about this incident and what she thought about all this. And she said they were not going to stop sharing Jesus regardless of the threats and the persecution. Well, it's challenging. It's inspiring. You know, with our far lesser trials here in Australia, we need to be spurred on by such examples to keep passing on the gospel as we have opportunity. That brings us to a second answer as to why Timothy should continue to pass on the gospel. Secondly, because he has God's authoritative word. Because he has God's authoritative word. Notice again, verses 15 to 17. Paul writes, And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. An aspect of God's powerful word which enables us and equips us to persevere in passing on the gospel is that the Bible alone is authoritative on salvation and sanctification. Notice that the Holy Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation in verse 15, firstly. Jesus is the one in which believers are to place their faith to be saved. And salvation is the central goal of Scripture. God desires to be in a right relationship with people that he created in his image. And in the context of Paul's instructions to Timothy about his role as a leader in the Ephesian church, he is to use the Scriptures to teach and instruct people how to be saved through faith in Christ. The message of salvation that began in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the gospel. And this is Timothy's greatest resource for his task of passing on the good news. It's going to sustain him in his work. And this message is to be preached. It's to be received by faith because the Bible is authoritative on salvation. We don't need 
other authorities or resources because the Bible alone is sufficient and it asserts that salvation is by faith alone. Now, the opening section of verse 16 states that all scripture is God-breathed. Now, through the centuries, this verse has played a central role in the church's understanding of the inspiration of scripture. See, one of the reasons Timothy can be assured that the preaching and teaching of the gospel will be profitable is that the message comes from God, not from humans. And so the word for scripture in verse 16 is literally writing, but within the context of the New Testament and also to Timothy, it refers to the Old Testament, as well as some parts of the New Testament that were already written and being circulated among the churches at that time. Now, this phrase, God breathed, is key to our understanding of the inspiration of scripture or holy writing. It is God's word as it's been breathed out or inspired by God's spirit. Now, this phrase doesn't tell us the manner of the inspiration in terms of how God used human authors to record his word, but it focuses on God as the source of the writings. And so in the opening part of verse 16, Paul is asserting that the entirety of Scripture comes from the mouth of God. To read it is to hear him speak. And it's therefore true and it can be trusted and applied to our lives. And so Timothy has what he needs to share salvation and to equip believers. Well, how can we apply this point to ourselves today? I believe we're forced to think about how we know what we know of our faith and to reflect on the nature and the importance of God's word. We should ask ourselves questions like, is our faith in Jesus founded on the trustworthy basis of scripture? And if so, do we believe and read the Bible as God's inspired word to us? If we do, we'll have what we need to pass on the gospel to others. See, such questions focus on our attitude to Scripture and our reading of it. Now, Christians are called to believe that the Bible has authority for all matters of faith and conduct. But sadly today, there are many who have only the loosest views of the inspiration of God's Word. They'll use that word, inspiration, as we might speak of an artist who was particularly inspired or at their peak that day. Now, although that's an extreme view whereby the Bible is just seen as a pure, purely human document, there is a more subtle stance held by some that is just as damaging to our trust of God's word. And this view is that God must have accommodated himself to the human writers, the result being that God didn't fully control the final product. And so what we have in the Bible is a bunch of errors. Or the related idea that the Bible has been changed and, you know, in its transmission and so it can't be fully trusted. Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, uh, published in 2003, popularised such views which have been put forward, I might say, and refuted for centuries. But because the, his novel sold over 60 million copies worldwide and was translated into 44 languages, it had a big impact for a fictional book. And the subsequent movie, uh, which was released in 2006, starring Tom Hanks, made over $750 million. And so this view that you can't trust the Bible was further spread. 
Now, the novel claims uh, that Jesus was mar married to Mary Magdalene and that at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Jesus was upgraded from mortal prophet to son of God following a council vote. The novel also argues that the reason that we don't see this lack of divinity in the pages of the New Testament is that it was rewritten following the Council of Nicaea at the request of the Roman Emperor Constantine. This conspiracy theory, though, doesn't hold water for any serious historian for a couple of key reasons. Firstly, the early church fathers' writings from before the Council of Nicaea all viewed Jesus as divine, and the council was not convened to determine the divinity of Jesus. Secondly, since the Council of Nicaea didn't upgrade Jesus from prophet to divine son of God, there was no need for the emperor to commission a new Bible. And in fact, there is not a shred of evidence that he did so. You see, God by nature doesn't lie and cannot utter any falsehood. And so if the words of Scripture are genuinely God's words, as they claim, with the Holy Spirit superintending the writing of every human author, then the words of the Bible must be without error. We can trust them as we share God's word with others. But secondly, notice that the Bible not only informs us of how we might be saved by faith in Jesus, but it also helps us to grow in godliness and service as his followers. This is the focus of verses 16b and 17, where the Bible, we're told, is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, while also therefore equipping us for good works. Now, these four terms in verse 16 form two groups. The first two refer to doctrine or theory, if you like, and the second two refer to behavior or practice. And so the Bible instructs us on true doctrine while also rebuking heretical ideas, and then it corrects improper behavior and also educates us, educates us in right behavior. And so there's a positive and a negative for both, both a training and a correcting aspect to our beliefs and our actions. And this training, which helps us in the process of our growth in godliness or our sanctification, will itself prepare us or equip us for every good work. You see, the logic of this whole section is that if Scripture comes from God and is true, then it provides the content of belief and the guidelines for conduct so that we are enabled to do good works. And the emphasis throughout this section is on the sufficiency of Scripture, the completeness of our preparation for passing on the gospel if we've been trained by God's word. And so like Timothy, we have all the resources needed today in God's word that we might confidently pass it on. Now, as we apply this second point to ourselves more fully, I want us to focus on the different authorities today that compete for our society's allegiance and also can prevent us from passing on the gospel with uh, confidence. During the Reformation, uh, the main alternative to the revelation of God in the Bible was tradition, even within the church. And so the traditions that held sway were those of the Roman Catholic Church with their insistence on things like purgatory when you die, 
when you paid for your sins in part because Christ's work was insufficient on the cross. And of course, there were many more examples. But since the Reformation, the power of church tradition has been declining. It certainly still exists, even in Baptist churches that point to the authority of the Bible. And our society more broadly, of course, has its own secular traditions and practices that cut right across the Bible's teaching. But we should not be overawed as believers or put off by traditions or cultural expressions because they need to bow to the Bible's authority, not the other way around. But today, what has replaced tradition as perhaps the greater rivals to the Bible's authority are the twin sacred cows of human reason and experience. And so on the issue of human reason, if people are not convinced of the logic or the scientific proof of something, then they reject it. And this is where people sit in judgment on the Bible rather than humbly sitting under God's word, which instructs us. And so if someone thinks miracles are illogical or they go against the laws of science, then they often reject the Bible outright. Now, of course, this has been going on since the time of Christ, but it's a much stronger rival to biblical authority today, as it doesn't just lead to non-believers rejecting Christianity, but it often leads to believers rejecting parts of the Bible. And when this happens, it produces liberalism in the church where the Bible is subjected to the authority of our superior reasoning. And of course, it hollows out people's confidence in God's word and the sharing of the gospel. Now, on the issue of experience, we have perhaps an even greater rival still. Our personal preference and experience are everything nowadays. And they're often held up as the arbiter of moral questions even. So as Michael Reeves and Tim Chester write, ethical issues are often decided on the basis of personal stories that elicit the most sympathy. Individual dilemmas are determined on the basis of a person's feelings. Any sense that right or wrong may be rooted in divine revelation has been replaced by subjectivity. And as Reeves and Chester go on to say, the church is not immune to this cultural trend either. Many people today are so desperate to hear the voice of God that they become obsessed with personal prophecies and dreams and words of knowledge. And without dismissing these things, which God may grant at times, they desperately seek a direct communication from God. And yet day by day, God is speaking to them directly through his word and the preaching of it in church. The problem at times seems to be that we don't like what we hear through God's word, that we're looking for another word that allows us to circumvent the call to take up our cross daily. We're seeking a word that justifies our worldly desires for self-fulfillment, self-importance. We need to acknowledge the limits of such so-called authorities. Whenever we make tradition or reason or experience a rival authority, one of these things will trump the Bible when push comes to shove. But for Christians, Scripture alone must be our supreme authority. And as a result, like Timothy, we should continue to pass on the gospel because of the example of other believers who have persevered in the face of opposition and persecution but also because we should continue to share the good news that brings life 
knowing that we are convinced of the authority of God's word. These two things, the example of those that hold to it and God's word that we have before us, should give us great confidence to keep passing on the message of salvation. Will you join me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the example of fellow believers who have held strongly to it, even in the face of opposition. Just as the Apostle Paul called Timothy to, help us not to be swayed by the rejection of those around us or the views of our world and their dismissal of the Bible. Lord, help us to see that you have given us that which is most precious, that which has full authority. And we pray that the result will be that we're spurred on to share the good news, knowing that there is no other way for people to find salvation, that there is no other purpose in this life except for your intentions for us revealed in your word. Uh, Lord, help us to stand firm on it and help us to be ready and willing to share it as we have opportunity. For we ask this in Christ's powerful name. Amen.